Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit. And this week we're talking about the Murdoch Factor. With me today is Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. Hi, Dom. Hi, Charlotte. So we're talking about four days after Rupert Murdoch announced his plan to step down as chairman of News Corp and Fox Corp in November. Obviously, it's been almost 70 years at the helm of this massive media empire. Well, it's massive now, but he's obviously built it up over that period. But Dom, we've decided to call this episode The Murdoch Factor. What is The Murdoch Factor? And why are we calling it the Murdoch Factor? Well, I, I thought Future Media, we're going to have to think about Future Media without Murdoch. But I bet there's a few CEOs who'd like to emulate his success. So I thought, well, what is it? What is it that he's got which other CEOs don't? So I think it obviously helped that he didn't come to it with nothing, did he? He was quite well off, although was, I think his father owned you know one or two newspapers in Australia. So, you know, he wasn't poor, but he's taken it from... Australia to the UK to America to the world. So yeah, what is the Murdoch factor? So I've got Peter Jukes, who's our expert witness, who's written a few books about Murdoch. And uh, I think it's fair to say he's, well, he he says he's a critic of what he sees as the oligarch-owned media. So uh, he's not the most pro-Murdoch person in the world. So I thought maybe I could could balance it with a bit of of pro-Murdoch stuff. Get as long as we've got both sides, as they say. So for you, what are the Murdoch factors? Well, I think if you could bottle it, there are a few things which I think really stand out. I think number one is I don't, I don't think there's many people, probably in journalism and the media generally, who've got really, really successful without taking a few risks. So I think this sort of him as a gambler and his willingness to sort of put all his chips on, uh, on, on one hand and really go for it, is one of the things which explains it. So he sort of famously did that with Sky in the early days. He like losing so much money, but he just bet the absolute farm on it. And that one's obviously won. I think uh, he sold it for, um, well, it was, it was valued at £30 billion when they sold it, so, which made his stake worth £12 billion. So like a tidy, tidy profit on that. And, you know, well above the sort of multiples that um, that broadcast companies normally get. So I think that sort of willingness to gamble, and obviously the fact that he's won, uh, and I think it's also worth worth mentioning that he's he's gambled on lots of things and lost 
over the years as well. In the 2000s, there was um, uh, we had like a free newspaper war in London. I don't know if you remember, but the the London paper versus like London Light. So it was Murdoch versus uh, Rothermere. And in the end, you know, surprise, surprise, like they both failed really because there was a sort of limit to how much people wanted, wanted free newspapers in London. So be bet tens and tens of millions on that, but he was sort of willing to give it a go. I remember um, before that, I remember they, they said the future of uh, Sunday newspapers was going to be a CD-ROM, and they spent millions on that. I remember I actually wrote a piece that's is online in Prescott saying that I've seen the future of media, and it is the month, this CD-ROM, which is going to... And then, but then they found out that, oh, actually, funnily enough, people don't actually go to the news agents, take the paper home, uh, unwrap a CD-ROM, then wander upstairs to the study, power up the computer and start downloading content from the CD-ROM. So like, it was very short-lived. So there have been a few things like that. And I think probably the, you know, he's probably made some really bad decisions as well over the years. But like the closure of the news of the world, I mean, it was, you know, I think uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But, you know, we now know that the hacking was far worse at the, the mirror titles, although maybe the news of the world did other things. So maybe they could have toughed that out. But I think, you know, that willingness to sort of double down on things and gamble, I think the sort of thick-skinnedness of him is incredible. He's incredibly thick-skinned, isn't he? You know, he just, just doesn't, he's impermeable. And I think his willingness to get down in the weeds as a manager, I think a bit like, you know, Zilla Bing Thorne, the future CEO outgoing, really across everything, really knows how the business works, knows every you know, bolt uh, and rivet and a, a sort of willingness to really make clear what he wants people to do and then sort of following through on that. I think I think nowadays CEOs like to be kind of a bit more empowering people, employing talented people and letting them use their creativity. But I think he's been very much of the school of, I want, I know exactly what I want done and I want you to do it. And, and if you don't do it, then, you know, woe betide you. Even in his note to staff last week when he said about stepping down he s- suggested he was still going to be around on Friday afternoons and wasn't going very far so I don't think he I think he's so kind of intertwined with everything and all the decisions that he's going to find it hard to step away at this point. Yeah and I suspect uh, I mean we get into it a bit in uh, my interview with Peter but I suspect he's going to be very very hard to replace because mm. it's uh, 70 years of experience and knowledge coupled with that sort of drive, work ethic, ruthlessness, and sort of directness. You know, it's just, there's never going to be anyone like that, is there again? I wouldn't have thought, unless unless maybe, you know, maybe Lachlan or James, maybe the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. Maybe Lachlan or James have got it, and we'll see it when they come into their uh, inheritance. Whoever wins, whoever wins the war of succession. <laughs> so do you want to introduce your chat with Peter for us? Yes, we've got Peter Jukes in. A Murdoch author. He's written a few books about Rupert, and he's also co-founder of Byline Times. And he first came onto Press Gazette's radar uh, when he uh, live-tweeted the hacking trial. And sort of since then, he's been a sort of close follower of the Murdoch empire. And uh, with Byline Times, you know, in some ways, he he provides a bit of a counterpoint to the sort of mainstream media with a sort of independent view on things, uh, which, as we know, has done some um, very interesting reporting in recent weeks about sort of Dan Wooden and things going on on there. But I started off by asking Peter um, how Rupert Murdoch first came into his life. 
Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Future of Media Explained. Great to be here, Dom, and what a futuristic place I am in. It's amazing. <laughs> People should come down here to the bunker, and it's got amazing cameras and mics. And Anyway, great to be here. We're going on the podcast studio. So uh, this week's um, edition is called The Murdoch Factor. Taking a look back at Rupert's 70-year career in the media, and there's not that many books been written about him, but y- you've written two or three, haven't you? You've written uh, Fall of the House of Murdoch, Beyond Contempt, which is the hacking trial book, and then you wrote a book about the murder of Daniel Morgan as well, and, and well, debatable the extent to which News of the World was in that, but it certainly loomed, loomed in the background, didn't it, of that story as well? Yeah, they were main employers of the murder suspects. Exactly. So uh, sort of the murky nexus of corrupt journalists, corrupt private eyes, corrupt cops. Uh, yeah, so quite, quite, big, quite a big factor in it all. But um, listen... We're looking back over his career, and he's Murdoch's um, a figure who's loomed large over the sort of your your career over the last decade or so. I mean, just just tell us how uh, how, how if you first came into the sort of orbit of of Rupert and first became seriously interested. It is weird. I mean, full disclosure, I worked in the 90s for Murdoch, technically. He set up a digital arm called News Multimedia, and I was involved in a drama, CD-ROM, about Enigma machines. So, you know, everybody ends up working for Murdoch. But I didn't really, beyond uh, the scandal I was in in my late 20s about the takeover of the Times, the forwards and backwards of that, whether that was monopoly breaking, creating monopoly in fleets. You didn't really think about it. I mean, there was a great play by David Hare, Pravda, I remember, in the 80s. But I completely forgot about Murdoch, except as a sort of Shakespearean character when, you know, Wendy, you had the issue with Wendy Deng and his kids in the late 90s. And the weird thing is, nobody will believe this, I got into Murdoch because I was criticising the BBC. So I'd worked as a BBC dramatist, television mainly, for about 20 years, then gone to LA briefly and come back. And in the late noughties, I wrote this piece, Why Britain Can't Do the Wire. It was my first bit of um, journalism, really, proper journalism, for Prospect magazine. And my mother, my kids, who was a senior BBC executive, said, you mustn't publish this. And then she read it and said, you must publish it, because it's very factual. And what that was, was about monopoly, that no matter how great that was, Drane Tranter at the time, the head of drama, the fact she's commissioning 70% of all UK drama is not good for the country, limits the drama compared to Mad Men, Sopranos, The Wires, how much more diverse they were, because they had a, a bigger market to sell to. And so when phone hacking came along, I saw it not as a problem of a conservative newspaper proprietor or an evil supporter of the Tories, I thought that, as a monopoly problem. That as I'd seen in, and it happens in drama, you know, this corruption of having too powerful a buyer in the market who distorts the market. And because monopoly brings, and I can get into details about monopoly, how it works, this kind of power abuses follow. So I did look at what happened with phone hacking is this kind of impunity came a large point from the dominant position Murdoch's newspapers had in Fleet Street in our press. The fact people wouldn't come forward and blow the whistle, the famous amerta from the fact is you're very likely to be employed like I was by a Murdoch organization. So that is my strange entry into it. And, you know, we can talk later about the other looming monopolies 
in digital media. But I do think that is one of the profound contradictions of his legacy, because a lot of his conservative beliefs are about competition and free markets. I would say, and you see it going back to his time in Australia, certainly through his befriending of every British prime minister, then paying court to him, he doesn't believe in a competitive market. He games the market. He games the ref. His strategy is to exert political pressure which favours him commercially, which leaves his competitors and rivals in a very awkward position. They either have to emulate that kind of political pressure or, like the Independent, was basically destroyed by the Times, the price dumping in the late 90s. So, yes, yeah, so the late 2000s when you really got seriously into uh, Rupert. So back then he had, what, the uh, biggest-selling Sunday newspaper by a long margin, News of the World, biggest-selling daily, The Sun... The Times, with the most successful quality title, Sunday Times, but uh, biggest selling quality title. You know, fast forward to today, and The Sun is probably tying with The Mail for best selling daily. The Sun brand is probably the most read in the UK. Times doing very well, Sunday Times. So he's still, he's still there, despite everything. I mean, especially, you know, the hacking scandal was a real mm. seismic blow, and it cost him a, a billion, at least yeah, a billion pounds. Uh, so, you know, but he absorbs it and he continues. I mean, so the, the title of this podcast is The Murdoch Factor mm. because, you know, like him or loathe him, he is incredibly successful and he just continues and continues and continues. So what for, what for you is the sort of the Murdoch Factor, the thing which uh, he's got, which has enabled him to sort of continue to grow in his power probably over 70 years? Yeah, I mean, there's so many elements here. And I must say, no, nobody's all good. I make, Even I make mistakes. And nobody's all bad. So there's no doubt Murdoch has many talents. Amazing energy. You know, he's 92 and he just stepped down. I think his key visionary element, which was, you know, he will take other people's ideas and make them successful. If you look at the sun, the sun is a carbon copy of the mirror from the 60s. Except he added another thing, which was TV. TV and page three. I mean, in a way, he comes to power around News of the World with the Christine Keeler diaries. He's a 60s kid. He, you know, he's a disruptor when it comes to sexual mores and using TV to traction his newspaper products. And he's ruthless. I mean, Harry, the late Sir Harry Evans, I think I can say it now because he told me this privately, um, but he wouldn't mind me saying it now. He thinks he's a bandit. He has that because uh, he's from Australia, non-conformist background, he looks on British society and American society as elites. He is very good at breaking the system. The problem is, what is the legacy of that breakage? You know, there's definitely the competitiveness after merging with TV, the next big kind of move for newspapers, apart from, we can talk about whopping and streamlining the print process, was celebrity. You know, when, you know, and he was investing the sky in uh, footballing in the Premier League. Yet the stories would be about Beckham and all these players, hero worshipping in, in them, and then finding out stuff about their private lives, as we now know a lot of it unlawfully. He was amazing at creating these markets, these sort of derivatives of fame. And, you know, his key lieutenants in the 90s, like Rebecca Brooks, Andy Coulson, Piers Morgan, sense, especially around Diana, this new world of celebrity gossip. But as we know, the demand became so great for that stuff. Difficult to stand up, much easier to stand up if you get into their voicemails or rather their friends' voicemails. Find out where they are, send a private detective. The amount, 
has come out since about isn't, phone hacking was the nice stuff. You know, we know blagging medical records, bank statements, personal information happened to Jill Dando. That became an industry standard. And I suppose you could say one of the legacies of his kind of the regime, the ethos he set up doesn't mean he knew about phone hacking directly. He certainly knew about it when they tried to cover it up a bit. But, you know, this was a race to the bottom. There's a great story of, so a little aside here, of there's these two fish, young fish, and they swim up to this old fish. And the old fish says to them, oh, isn't the water lovely today? And he swims off. And the two, one young fish goes to the other young fish. What's water? We live in an ethos around the press, which is pretty unique in the world. It's history of its kind of competitiveness, its intrusiveness. There may be parallels in America in the turn of the last century. And that has been set by him, I'd say. So the Murdoch factor is worth 27 billion. Can he pass it on? It's a Rupert Murdoch factor. I don't think it's a Murdoch family factor. We can talk about it later. But the ruthlessness, the willingness to court politicians to get what he wants around whopping. Do you remember? He said at Leveson, oh, I never don't care about politicians. You know, they call me. I never ask them to help me out. And Andrew Neil came forward to say that I completely contradict that. I remember during the whopping dispute, he specifically asked Margaret Thatcher for more police protection. And I'd say that's where some of the connections to the Daniel Morgan between police, payments to police, this sort of what Gordon Brown called a criminal media nexus began to develop. Talk about whopping. I think um, it's all interesting, isn't it? Because I think we feel like we live in an era of culture wars now, don't we? Mm. But probably in the 80s, the culture wars were around sort of industrial disputes and the sort of left and the right. It was very, very visceral at the time. Mm. I was young, I remember it though. But, you know, looking back on it, I think a lot of people would say how mad it was that the that the, uh, that the print workers were able to hold the sort of journalists to ransom all the time. You know, imagine if the content management systems did that to today's websites. You know, and he, he sort of obviously broke that monopoly and, and enabled a short era of quite good profitability for a lot of newspapers, whereas before they were, it was really costing them a lot in terms of production. So I don't know, do you feel in a sense that the the way he's remembered for the whopping dispute is sort of mellowed a bit, or do you still think he's a bit of a bogeyman for the way he handled it? Oh, well, so there's the dispute itself and the way it was handled. As you know, Eddie Shaw actually began to break uh, the power of the print unions, and I was an unemployed uh, writer. And, and I noticed this a lot with the unions in the early This is 86, wasn't it, whopping, was these unions are protecting their jobs. They're not thinking about the unemployed. They're not thinking about entry into the industry. It's a closed shop. And look, nobody doubts the stories of the print unions the corruption that used to go on, the supplacement. But other countries had that problem. It's like the mining dispute, right? Other countries moved away from mining. Did they have to go down this massive police confrontation? Wapping had 10,000 protests at one point. Lots of people injured, thousands of police guarding it. The mining dispute, did it have to be, you know, could it have done deindustrialized that bit of the countryside less brutally, less politically? Other countries managed to do it. And you're right, there is this brief moment after Wapping, everything's electrified, they work with the electricians union, and he owns 40% of the press back at this point. And that, and the senior executive, well, his name, the phone hacking trial, said it was Monopoly. Why? This is a News International, as it was known, executive. Why? Well, Peter, we had 40% of the market, we had 50% of the revenues. Clear sign of 
just monopoly price gouging. Where did that money go, Dom? You know, he, they were cash cows from about 1989, 86 onwards. With that, in three years, he was making 100 million a year. He borrowed the money to buy Metro Media to start off the Fox network. So here is one of the crucial problems about Rupert is it's not British citizen. Now, I, that's not a racist. It's not kind of saying, oh, don't have foreigners in our midst. It is he had to become an American citizen because in America, the rule is to own media station, you have to be an American citizen. We didn't care about this because we're liberal, metropolitan elite, all the things they rail against. So a lot of those profits from this monopoly in British print in the late 80s and early 90s, 90s went over to America. It wasn't reinvested here. So I would say that highlights other non-donomers and things like that. It's not murder that way. But that principle, that legacy that you can affect the politics, take a lot of money out of a country. And of course, they pay taxes locally, but the news call, the big profits are not paid here. That has vitiated our media, I think. No, they, the American Revolution said, was it no taxation without representation? Well, no representation without taxation should be the corollary. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. You were observing Murdoch uh, close during his, probably his yeah, biggest challenge he's probably ever faced, I reckon, the, the hacking scandal. It felt at the time the whole thing was coming quite close to collapsing because there was a talk of a corporate prosecution, which would have put Murdoch and his son in the dock. And the, there was a fear that the sort of contagion from the news of the world could mm. infect the whole business. And it could, uh, so, that, you know, they obviously had a very brutal decision to close it. What did you think about the way he handled all that? I remember he went before the uh, Commons, didn't he? He said it was select the most committee. select committee. He said, I'd, say, I'd like to say one thing. It's the, the most humble day of he my didn't life. Say, if only he had <laughs> said that in yeah. grammar, he said the yeah. humblest day of my humblest life. Humblest day of my life. Um, <laughs> Do you think it was the most humble day of his life? <laughs> no, I think he was genuinely, you know, shocked by the Millie Dowler thing. I think there was a lot of management going on because they was remember at that point under James who was trying to create a new broom and you know sweep some stuff under the carpet but sweep up uh some of the mess of the past they were bidding for the whole B Sky B which was because by the way the history of that is Thatcher allowing because it was British Sky Broad it was BSB which was given the license Rupert was allowed to start his own Sky broadcasting from Belgium with Thatcher say so just before she left so there was a lot of gaming of the ref going on there so there was huge that was, they could see papers were dying. And James's huge strategic move was to put them all together in a kind of huge hub. And the phone hacking scandal definitely derailed that. What was revealed was all the lobbying going on, the sense the revolving door back door to Parliament. 
Um, and then, of course, they tried again about four years later and they failed. So in that way, it did have a permanent dented his reputation. I think it must have dented his spirit. And then the focus really goes on to America, doesn't it, to Fox. Fox then doubles down and becomes a key. It's 2012, goes to Romney, but then really pushes for Trump. And oops, Dominion ruling about lying about the voting machines being fixed to make sure Biden won when actually Trump had won. They paid out another billion on that. I'm not sure he did the right thing staying on for another 10 years. And obviously, to senior executives, a sign of resilience. Murdoch won't be beaten. I remember, yeah, somebody saying, well, the empire will never end. I said, well, it's got to end. My book, Full House Murdoch, was about fall from grace. And the idea of the house, really. Will, this was Succession, the famous TV series by Jesse Armstrong is about. Can Murdoch pass it on? Now, this is, the, again, the problem with his libertarian ideology. He doesn't like the royal family. He believes he's a meritocrat. He likes free markets, but he also likes closed markets. It's a game of the ref, as I said. He also is trying to create a dynasty. Anything we know about genetics or families, there's no guarantee that just because the fathers are good businessmen and smart, that any of the kids will be like that. There's just a genetic random deviation to the, to the norm, isn't there? And I think that's the kind of other big paradox of him. He wants continuity. He wants to leave something behind. But he's unable to really pass on those characteristics he has to anybody else. Well, you, you brought up Succession, which is obviously great. And uh, I, I feel like, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but I feel like in Succession terms, we're probably at the start of season one now because <laughs> it's all going to kick off, isn't it, over the, the, the who's who's going to take over. And he's still sat there, isn't he? So he's he's there and he's not there. His emeritus board. I'm not sure how much he's sat there. Why? You know, if he's in the same, why even announce this? He's not stepping down to November, by the way. But why, if he is still there, why announce it at all? Yeah, presumably it must signal a stepping back for for whatever reason. Yeah. So as I understand it, like Lachlan pole position now. He's he's now mm. he's now running the show. But when Rupert does eventually, you know, uh, when the children do eventually inherit, they'll you can't be, even say it. when he shuffles off his mortal coil. Well, you know, he's way. still he's still with us, isn't he? Yeah. So as I, as I understand it, the four children then will inherit equal shares in the trust, of the family trust. What happens to the, to the Deng daughters? I can't. They don't, remember. they don't get a vote. They don't get a vote. So it's that that four. Presumably they got some sort of settlement, but they've been looked after. I'm sure they get the money, but not the vote. <laughs> so yeah. that is um, Prue, and in age of seniority, Lachlan, James, and Elizabeth. Right? Lachlan won't survive, will he? Because the other three are not. They they don't like the direction that particularly James, and I do believe him on that, has gone on climate change denial. Elizabeth only met once, who knows, but she seems more of a liberal frame of mind and Prue will kind of go with the rest. So once somebody says one newspaper report, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal, maybe no, maybe the New York Times, Lachlan's gone when uh, his father dies. Because that, unless there's some other deal to be stitched up, that is um, the voting pattern. But you're fascinated. So I'd met Jesse Armstrong at that event you were at, the Harry Evans Memorial uh, thing. And he and he did say, look, it isn't all based on Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. It's based on Redstone and various other families. But it brings back the fact that in Walls, in terms of the share price, in terms of the value of the company, there's a thing called the Murdoch discount. 
when he goes, the value of those companies sinks. Because you're right, he's brought this knowledge, his personal connections, this 70-year history. That created a lot of the value in those companies. And so what, what do you think can happen to the empire next, assuming um, James perhaps uh, wins out? I, I can't remember which succession character he might be equivalent James to. is more like uh, uh, Kendall, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he's a sort of uh, Kendall. He's kind a of rebel. Rebel, and do you remember because James was in a hip-hop band, you know, yes, he's more like... I don't know, Roman doesn't seem like Lachlan because he's so crazy and Lachlan seems a bit straighter than that. Yeah, uh, yeah. you can see uh, what's like Shiv, Siobhan, a little bit like Elizabeth. Who knows? Yeah. And so what do you think happens to the company then? Do the What often happens to these media companies is obviously the children don't have the same passion that the uh, founders did and everything gets sold off and they cash in. They're, they're all probably comfortably off anyway. So I imagine other things perhaps motivate them. You know, James is, like you say, he's got some more progressive political views. So maybe that motivates him. I don't know. What do you think happens to the um, the empire in a few years' time? So the components of the empire, the key, the most profitable bits on, there's best properties in Australia is the Fox brand, the network. That is, but that's in, it's been in trouble since Roger Ailes, who found, you know, was the main driving spirit who didn't like Lachlan, got rid of Lachlan. You know, that is so contingent on political events. It very much drove, again, Gaming the Red Regulator, uh, Ronald Reagan, who made uh, Rupert Murdoch just fast-tracked him to citizenship, he also repealed or overcame the fairness doctrine, which, a bit like Ofcom, required an, a level of impartiality and restraint from broadcasters. So that whole development, I don't know about the the British end and the British newspapers. Also, you have the Australian, which is like their Times. You have various more tabloid properties in Australia. You've got the New York Post. You have the Times as a group here and the Sun. The Sun is still losing money, isn't it? Mainly due to these court cases. So the whole newspaper business is in a slight problem. Somebody told me the Times is a very saleable product of itself. I don't know if that's true. We see the struggling problems with the um, uh, with the Telegraph, don't we? But there's also, you know, News UK might be trying to buy the Spectator. I would say none of this speaks well for the diversity of the press. None of this speaks well for sort of robust health of holding power to count when, you know, media companies are themselves power bases. So it's very difficult when you have a vested interest. But this is true 100 years ago, by the way, and you had cabinet members who were newspaper proprietors and... In, in the World War One, in the British cabinet, how you hold that to account. I will tell you one little anecdote, just out of mischievous glee uh, about the times, though, because um, I first became a journalist, you know, because of the phone hacking stuff, and I'd written about the BBC and destroyed my career there and the longest career suicide note ever written. Uh, and so I thought I'd carry on this truth-telling. And I was employed by Tina Brown of the Daily Beast. That's how I met Harry Evans. And so I think she was being a bit mischievous, but there was a Downton Abbey event which she hosted in the British Museum or something, very grand. And she put me on the table with all the Times journalists and editors, all the Peter Stoddard and his wife. And, and they, they were all going, Peter, don't be so rough on, harsh on Rupert. He's so good for us. You know, who else is going to pay for British journalism? And I calculated. I said, I think I said this to Tina who laughed, but suddenly said it since, you know what? you can buy a good tranche of the British intelligentsia for 10 million pounds a year. And that, to me, is the problem. You, you know, we all have friends. But if he goes, who's going to say, who's going to, how going to pay the school fees? Uh, and that sort of sense of capture and that, 
that I, people will be sad. That will be the end of an era. Yeah. I suppose I will be a bit sad when he, when he moves on because I guess, you know, after the hacking scandal, you know, it was a terrible thing, but he continued to support the sun. He continued to invest in that journalism. And that seemed to be as much due to a sort of sentimental affection for the title as much as anything. And then if you look at the Times and Sunday Times, and like you say, you know, no one's all bad, but, you know, the Times and Sunday Times, no one would argue they don't do, you know, some of the best investigative journalism in the world. And, you know, Rupert's bankrolled that, and he bankrolled it for a long time when it was loss-making. So I guess I, I worry a bit that when he's gone and someone who doesn't have share his you know, his passion, he's obviously passionate about journalism and and about the news, but somebody who doesn't have that drive and who just sees it as purely a balance sheet. Why why would it have to be that way, though, Dom? I mean, UK journalism is very peculiar because it was such a small country, you could deliver overnight to Scotland uh, a morning edition, right? And America, because it's so much bigger, had a stable oligopoly, you know, LA Times, uh, Chicago Tribune and the newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, Boston Globe. So, and it didn't have this race to the bottom, whereas we have this unstable monopoly situation where there were too many national papers, not, you know, chasing after too few consumers. So, you know, he did pump cash into journalism. I, it must be pointed out that, you know, I love some of the journalists who, you know, and some of the Times, Sunday Times has done, Times slightly different many op-eds, it does buy the intelligentsia. And when it comes to an election or Muslims, it will toe a very specific line. So it's non-ideological 90% of the time, but very clear-cut decisions. So it's still a political instrument in a more velvet glove. That undermines trust in journalism. That stops people investing it. That stops people rating journalism. So yes, he's invested in it. I'd say he's also undermined it, undermined trust in it. And you're right, but why couldn't we look to a better form of nature? I mean, Jeff Bezos hasn't done a bad job at the Washington Post. He seems to keep independent. He seems to fund it. The New York Times is making heaps of money. The Guardians begin to make money. I do see that people will miss him and thank him for what he did. But it's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? We all fall in love with the prison guard. Like you say, the um, I think every single Murdoch property supported the uh, war in Iraq. One they? didn't of uh, two one hundred and sixty nine papers. I think one didn't. Some, but it was in sort of somewhere a small newspaper in the Pacific. Yeah, I wonder how the <laughs> I wonder how the editor of that, of that title ended up. <clears throat> well, look, thanks for that, Peter. We're nearing the end of our time. What 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 do you think of, of all those things? Uh, you know, positive or negative? If you were going to pick out one thing that was the the one quality, the one factor that has given Murdoch what he's got is this fortune, what is it, 20 billion or whatever? 27 billion. Yeah. Uh, he did, a bit like Trump, inherit quite a lot. He was a millionaire's son. Uh, I have this, okay, quite a private image. I can't really tell the source. But uh, during the Levson inquiry, you know, Rupert said in his, his um, farewell statement from this, you know, executive role that, you know, I've... I'm fighting elites. And I think, look, I really think he believes this. He used to go to uh, Oxford. He had the chauffeur, uh, which rare Oxford. But, and he had a bust of Lenin on his, and his, you know, there's the bust of Lenin and the chauffeur in his college rooms. And he really fell out with the Labour Party. I think the Labour Club won by Shirley Williams at that time and felt really excluded. So at Leveson, 
you know, I think he feels it's the English, it's the elites again, you know, these elites keep on sort of challenging him. But when he went back halfway through his evidence, there was a waiter in sort of flunky, complete, who took a huge dish, there was lobster, and tucked it in and he started eating. A bit like that water anecdote, you know, what's water? I don't think Rupert realizes sometimes the privilege he lives with and the amazing power and the amazing opportunity he had. And that is a sort of, a bit like Elon Musk is a moment. You know, there is a tragedy in all men of great power where they reach the end of their talents and they should have gone. And I think the Dominion case particularly, the whole involvement with Trump with no torches him, he should have gone a bit earlier. Yeah, and, the, and you mentioned the sort of railing against elites in his uh, resignation statement yeah. as well, didn't he? As Absolutely. He, he still thinks that he likes to speak truth to power. I will give you this, compared to Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, at least he runs a newspaper, at least they have legal departments, at least you can go to them, you might not get it for a fact check or a correction. You know, yes, that level, and I think you're right, at this level, we will appreciate Murdoch because he's gone, not because he was a perfect saint or we should hold on to him. What's to come could be a lot worse. We'll end on that note. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much for coming Thank in. You. So, Dom, obviously, Peter's saying a changing of the guard is good. What's your opinion and how much do you think you'll be missed in our industry? Well, I think we will miss uh, Rupert because um, he's invested an awful lot in journalism. He's maybe invested more in journalism than any other individual. He's obviously made a lot out of it as well. Uh, but he has, um, you know, a clear passion for the news business. He often talks about his father and uh, the sort of sort of proud family history. And it obviously means a lot to him. So I guess I worry that uh, post-Rupert, maybe the bean counters will will take over and, the, and people who are a bit less sentimental might say, well, why don't we just do these things cheaper? Or, or what, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to do things quite the same way. Well, thanks very much, Dom. This has been Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tovit, Press Gazette editor-in-chief Dominic Ponsford and produced by Bronmar and Suze Cooper. Hope to see you again in a fortnight. In the meantime, please like, subscribe and share with all your friends and colleagues. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.